I'm Tammy Faraday and you're listening to Brave Journeys, the podcast about amazing people who've navigated life's invariable challenges with courage, authenticity, grit and grace. When Joe Hyman left his parents at the airport for a year away at a religious seminary, he was carrying so much more baggage than just his suitcase. His then hidden gay identity dragged behind him wherever he went. A few months before leaving for his gap year abroad, Joe found what's known as a conversion therapist online, falsely peddling a so-called cure to same-sex attraction. And as time went on, it becomes clear that this quackery that includes humiliation, degradation and the vilification of his own parents wasn't going to change who Joe was. In this episode, Joe and I speak about growing up in an orthodox world, the horrific abuse that is conversion therapy and the irreparable damage it causes. We also chat about Joe's quest to find a space where his sexual identity as well as his love of his faith could both find their home. I felt just broken and that feeling was really painful. There's a kind of fear of having to continue life with that feeling as well as that was that my family, my beautiful, big family with lots of cousins who were getting married at the time and people were building families. I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be part of that story. It's important that I preface this episode by saying that this incredibly vital conversation is not about besmirching any religious community. Because Joe's story, like so many others, can be found in virtually every and any faith community but rather to shed some genuine light and gain some profound understanding of how people, irrespective of religious affiliation, find their place when they are LGBTQ. As always, I come to this conversation from a place of compassion, love, respect and authentic curiosity. And it's in that spirit that I am so thrilled to introduce Joe. This is Joe's story. Welcome, Joe. I am so delighted that you're here. I have been looking forward to this all week since we spoke. But before we delve into your remarkably courageous life, I want to flag something again we've discussed, how important it is to be nuanced in this conversation, Mm. because this is in no way a chat about damning any particular religion or religious belief. In my humble estimation, the world's full of enough hate at the moment and enough pain and religious discrimination, and I certainly don't want to contribute or perpetuate that. You, Joe, happen to be Jewish, incredibly invested in your heritage and your traditions, and you are a wonderful gay man. But it's important to say that I've also reached out to potential guests for Brave Journeys who are Muslim observant and gay, as well as Christian observant and gay, Mm. being LGBTQ and seeking to live a three-dimensional, authentic, rich life and still be a welcomed, accepted, embraced member of a religious community is actually the plight of so many. So I hope that this chat will shed genuine light on how people, irrespective of religious affiliation, find their place and their space in a religious world when they identify as LGBTQ. Mm. And to talk frankly about pseudoscientific and dangerous practices like conversion therapy that are tearing amazing people like you to shreds and it must be outlawed all over the world. So that was a really long, painful way of me saying, welcome, I'm so happy you're here. 
I'm so happy to be here. Really delighted to be chatting with you. Yeah, it's really, really special. But let's go back to your childhood and start with your parents. What a fascinating coupling. Your mum's an Egyptian Jew and your dad's a Scottish Jew and you were raised in a Jewish modern Orthodox home. But before anything else, can we get down to what's really important? The food in your house must have been insane. <laughs> um, yes, it was. I mean, there was no haggis. There was no Scottish <laughs> food to be seen. Mum was very much ruling the roost when it came to the cooking. My grandma brought all of her recipes with her. I mean, there weren't recipes. They were all in her head and they were passed down through her hands and through her voice and through the food, the smells growing up, you know stuffed vegetables with meat and rice and 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 so many different things you know biscuits and pastries and special things for each of the jewish festivals yeah i really hold on to those memories one one thing to say is my grandma had this a uh, room of pots and pans that she used and i have a picture of it on my screensaver because i like to remember her but yeah that's the oh, kind of family so i come much. from yeah that is divine That is divine. I was just thinking because we're just about to emerge, I think, from our fourth lockdown here that I've clearly been watching too much MasterChef. But I just imagine these like Middle Eastern banquets and I did imagine haggis, but I knew that it wouldn't have been served in your home. Can you tell me what it was like growing up in the Hyman home? Of course. Yeah. So it was a really loving home. I have have much older siblings. So it was often me as only child um, a lot of the time. But I had a lot of cousins growing up. Um, We spent Passover together often every year and the Jewish festivals at family. So Judaism for me was kind of really a huge part of that family life, Um, that warmth, that home, that hospitality, that giving to other people. I had a wonderful childhood from that regard. That's beautiful to hear. So, Joe, you attend a mixed co-ed modern Orthodox primary school. How did you find that world? So there were lots of factors in play. I went to a different school to my siblings. It was a bit of a new world for my parents. The school was relatively religious, but it was mixed girls and boys together. My experience was difficult. I think I had friends at different points, but I was scared of school. I was scared of sports days when we when we had sports. I remember not going to school on Wednesdays because I was terrified of changing with the other boys. I remember there being two playgrounds and of one where all the boys played football and one where the girls played hopscotch and with their stickers and that's where I wanted to be and I was terrified of the football area and I remember that's kind of my vivid memory and I think also to say you know I had my first interaction with Judaism and Jewish texts and kind of my the religion that I was brought up in that was really positive it's there that I kind of learned to love the faith that I was brought up in but it's also the place that I was bullied for being fat and bullied for being not masculine enough. It's the place where I first heard the word gay used as a insult against me. So it's a complicated space. And I think that's the complicated space that we come to in this conversation. It's like that, that love for, for the community and space I grew up in, but also with that, that kind of pain as well. So, just wanting to clarify, bullying was part of your experience in this environment. Was it a case of homophobic slurs against you per se, or was the word gay just used? 
because I'm much older than you, but I remember at school that word was used in a pejorative context, but it actually didn't mean anything that we understand it to mean today. So I want to know what your experience was. Was it directly at you? Was it just said in the schoolyard? Again, it doesn't mitigate the impact on you, but I'm just curious in which way was it spoken about because I wasn't sure going to a co-ed modern orthodox school that you would actually have a lexicon around this stuff. So they're two separate things in some way. I was bullied for being fat. I was bullied for being different, bullied for for not playing football, bullied for liking things other people didn't like. I was bullied for living in a different area. Difference was the reason I was bullied, not because I was gay. I wasn't aware that I was gay at the time. But the moment that the word gay came in was towards the end of our time in school. It was as we were growing up, kind of hitting puberty just before our bar mitzvahs. I remember the actual space in the playground where I heard the word gay for the first time. I can remember it vividly. And I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that people were saying it maybe not to me because of who I was, but just saying it as an insult and an insult to me. Um, but I wasn't really sure. And I think that's when the, the seed was planted in like, oh, maybe that's, maybe that's why I feel different. Maybe that's why I'm bullied. Maybe that's why people don't like me. Who was there for you, Joe? Was there anyone that you could confide in and explore the feelings that you were having? And at this stage, it was just, as you said, it was feeling different, different to your cohort. But was there anyone you could talk to? It's funny, no one's asked me that ever before. And thinking about it now, when it came to this particular thing, no. No one was there to make me feel okay for who I was at the time. I think there was a lot of pressure to do self-defense and do this and do that and kind of do these masculine things to protect yourself. Go to school, you know, just be normal. I had a lot of pressure when, when I was growing up to do that from all kind of sides of my family and voices around giving opinions. But no one was there to say, your feelings are actually okay. Your feelings that you want to do something differently, the feelings that you want to be something else, those weren't validated, those weren't heard. And, and I was scared to talk about them because I hadn't seen anyone like me um, in my community. But if you were playing truant almost once a week, wasn't there anyone even in your family that were registering that something was off, that you were not a happy boy, that there were things that would just awry? Yes. I think people were there for me when it came to the truancy. People were there for me when it came to me missing school. Oh, he doesn't like sport. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's overweight. He's conscious about what he looks like, all these different things. But when it came to thinking about being different to the other boys, that wasn't what was supported. My family was supportive and there for me about the bullying, but the answer to that was often be stronger, be more masculine, be better. And, you know, there were also hugs and there were also, you know, kind words and there were also lots of love, but there wasn't, it's okay to be who you are. At what age were you able to sort of assimilate that the difference that you were experiencing, I mean, there may have been other differences because we're all multifaceted, but a profound issue for you was that you were feeling that you had a different sexual identity to the majority of people you went to school with. I actually can't pinpoint the exact moment, but I'd say that there was a realisation around 10 that this had something to do with boys. This had something to do with liking other boys. Um, It was when primary school dating began, that kind of insignificant moment when people began dating, like the two people in the class 
who suddenly had girlfriends. What do you mean it's insignificant? Like, I still remember that. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you had that moment, Pam, because it's... I didn't. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I didn't. I was such a nerd. No one looked twice at me. I'm totally joking. I'm just having you yeah. on. Go on. But I think, I think the moment when I moved to high school was when it really dawned on me that I was attracted to men around the time of my mitzvah, around the time of moving to a school with new people, with older men, to an all-boys school where I wasn't comfortable, where I wasn't feeling like I was the, you know, the older kid anymore. I, I, I got to a point in my primary school where I actually felt all right. You know, it was a difficult journey, but I'd felt all right by the end because I was, I'd been there for six years. And that moment when you go to high school and you, you realize you're back at the bottom of the food chain. I think it's at that moment that I realized, oh my goodness, I have these strong feelings towards all of these men around me. And it's terrifying. And I think at that point, I was just really, really scared. And I think because I already had that history of not going to school, I was able to kind of hide behind that. I was able to kind of hide behind, I'm not comfortable with sport. I'm not comfortable with changing around other guys. And that's kind of the smoke screen that I had to allow me to just retreat into a little corner and be like, I'm, I'm scared because I don't know what to do. We've just spoken about your bar mitzvah. So at 13, you have your bar mitzvah, which is a Jewish boy's rite of passage from boyhood to manhood. And you read from a portion of the Torah or the Old Testament. What was so confronting and painful about the specific portion that you read, particularly in light of all that you were going through? Yes. So I was learning um, this portion. We're going to read it out loud in front of all our family and friends in the synagogue and the whole community. I learned it kind of a year before I was 13. So we're talking about 12 years old. I come across the verse in this text that we're reading, learning how to say it and how to recite it. And it's the verse. And the verse that I wasn't aware of, but the verse that says, you shall not lie with a man because it's an abomination and you should be killed because of it. You should be kind of stoned because of it. And I read that. And as someone who had just realized, who had just realized, oh, I think I'm attracted to men. Uh, that's, the, that's that feeling of discomfort that I've had my whole life, that feeling of difference, that feeling of not really sure who I was. That's who I am. And then I get this, what felt like a message from God. I was a religious young man, and I'd been told about people getting messages from God and being communicated in that way. And that's what it felt like. I felt like God was telling me, you are gay, but you can't be, and you should change it. That was terrifying. I remember having to say it out loud in front of so many people. I remember my brother mentioning that verse and the verses around it, kind of about sexual ethics, in his speech at my bar mitzvah, and just being there in the in the top table of my party, kind of like you know, with with my shoulders together, just unsure what to do. So it was pretty traumatic. I can't imagine how terrifying that would have been, particularly as such a young kid and you're sort of on show. For those who don't know what a bar mitzvah is, you know, it's this sort of very, very, very big milestone in a young boy's life and they are in synagogue and there's often hundreds of people there and you're living your worst nightmare but in front of a major crowd. I don't even know how you got through the day. I really don't know how you got through the day. I honestly don't know either, but I did. <laughs> it happened and... I'm really not sure how I did. I think what happened was I must have squashed everything down and pretended it didn't exist. But I got through that day, distracted myself with, with the family, with the meals, with the, with the party. 
And the seeming antidote to those feelings of shame and otherness and perilous self-loathing was that you actually become more fervent in your observance, something that's not uncommon, I suspect. Joe, I'm going to ask you, did the thinking go something like this? If you're somehow a better Jew, a more devoted, serious, law-abiding Jew, God will help you overcome. Now, I know you know where I'm coming from because we've spoken prior to our chat today and you're watching my face so you can see my visual cues. But for those listening who don't have the benefit of seeing either you or me, in asking these questions, I know you know that, but I'm completely and utterly and unapologetically supportive of you. I'm just trying to inhabit your thinking at the time then and how you processed all you were feeling and navigating. So I think you hit the nail on the head when you spoke about increasing in religious fervor. I remember hitting my b'mitzvah and beginning to become more interested in reading texts and reading religious texts. And I remember coming across pieces about sexuality and also homosexuality and seeing that kind of sometimes people would mention, you know, prayer, pray or kind of be a better, better Jewish person, be a bit more religious person, and God will support you. And that was also the rhetoric that was used in the community in general. And it's, it's really empowering sometimes, but it's also not in this particular situation. Um, the, the, the idea that, you know, if you pray really hard, you can change something. Or if you kind of do really good acts, you can change the way the community is. And I took that internally. I couldn't talk to anyone about it. So all I thought to myself was be more religious, be more kind of observant of the Jewish rituals. Um, and I remember kind of going, going to bed in the evening and thinking to myself, please, God, please, God, like, let me just wake up and this go away. I think one of my predominant feelings as a young person was, how can I forget this? How can I forget these thoughts? How can I forget? Do we ever forget the pain that we experience? And all I wanted to do was forget it, like it didn't happen. But yeah, religious, religious practice really became part of a solution in my head. During this time, what were your greatest fears? My greatest fears at that time came from this really horrible feeling in my stomach, which I thankfully haven't felt in a long time. Um, I couldn't get rid of. It was something to do with guilt, something to do with shame, but I felt dirty and I felt just broken. And that feeling was really painful. It was a, it was a, it was a kind of fear of having to continue life with that feeling, as well as that was that my family, my beautiful, big, you know, family with lots of cousins who were getting married at the time and people were building families. I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be part of that story. And I didn't see myself as part of that story if I were to ever accept what was going on in my head. Also, let's, let's bear in mind that I had barely any, if not any, sexual education. So I didn't know about masturbation. I didn't know about anything sexual. I was not taught about any of these things. I spent my adolescent years thinking I was disgusting, broken. So it was the kind of fear of that feeling, the fear of losing my family. But there was also laced in there the fire and brimstone crap. <laughs> Sorry to kind of, you know, say that, but the, the, the fire and brimstone, the fear of Sodom and Gomorrah, the the biblical story of the the city burning and kind of you know and people linking that to homosexuality that fear of kind of 
being punished. And that was kind of the religion that I thought of when I was younger. I need to ask you this. What is it like to constantly push against the tide in the desperate bid to come across as the same as everyone else around you? What does that do to your psyche, to your soul, to your spirit? Well, first of all, it's exhausting and tiring. But this is every single day. It's work and it's labour and it's thoughts that you could actually be putting towards something beautiful, towards being yourself, towards helping others, towards being creative and adding something wonderful to the world. Were you consciously trying to suppress that feeling? I think when I, when I realised I was attracted to someone in school, I got that feeling of shame, that feeling of self-hatred in some way, and that desire to forget, to fall asleep, to just kind of remove myself from the space and, and go away. That's what I can remember of that feeling. It was really difficult, and I think it consumed my mind. So at about the age of 17, a few months prior to going abroad for your gap year to study at a religious seminary, which is common for many Orthodox young Jewish men and women, you see an ad online by a now discredited organisation called Jonah that offers conversion therapy. Now, before we talk about what so-called conversion therapy is, I want to know how you felt when you saw that ad. I remember seeing that ad on the computer over the shoulder of a family member and I felt this sense of hope. And I think the fact that I felt hope tells you about where I was. The fact that something so horrible that we'll talk about um, felt like a solution, like a safe space for me to feel myself, tells you a lot about the community and, and the headspace that I was in. What did conversion therapy promise? Why did you feel hope? I felt hope because it promised that I could live the life that I wanted, live the life with a woman, a wife, a family, be accepted and take away the feelings, forget the feelings that I had towards men and live a new life as a gay, uh, as a, as, sorry, live a new life as a straight man. And that was really exciting to me. It's really interesting that you just said that though. That slip was really interesting because it was actually aspirational about what you really wanted. Yes. You, yes. You know what? It's true. And I, and I am. <laughs> and and agreed. Maybe that's, yeah, my subconscious is speaking for me. It can't, it can't live in that lie anymore. Oh, you're so lovely, Joe. You really are. Okay. But so basically conversion therapy is, as we said, it's this false, dangerous pretense of conversion therapy, which is to basically almost pray the gay away. It's to make you straight. It's to make you forget who you actually ultimately are. That's the promise of these types of quackeries, really. But it's curiously around this time when you come out to your parents. Why? I come out to my parents at this time because I've reached a point when that feeling of fear, that feeling of shame is too much to bear alone. I came out to them at that point because I was so lonely, but also because I felt like I had a solution to give to them. You know, for context, I always felt like the fixer, 
like the the rescuer kind of I wanted to rescue and fix everything and I wanted to do that with myself so I came out to my parents and I said I'm gay but once I said that kind of the immediate line afterwards was but don't worry you know I've got a solution and here it is so like you know if if you want to reject me then you don't have to because I've got this they didn't want to reject me I remember sitting on the couch with my mum just crying together because saying those words at that time, you know, I say it so easily now, but saying those words at that time was the heaviest, most difficult thing I've probably ever done. And, you know, she, she loves me and my dad loves me and they both poured out love to me. But I think for my mum, I think it was confusing and scary and terrifying. And I think the reason that I came out at that point with a solution was to, I guess, soften the blow, to manage the people around me's feelings. And I was going to actually ask, what, did you tell both of your parents at once? Did you tell them separately? Do you remember? I think I told my mum in the house when my dad was there. But it was, I think I told my mum first, because I think I was more scared of telling my mum than telling my dad. Really? Why is that? Why is that? Well, my my dad, for context, my dad is an incredibly honest, wonderful, scientific man who didn't grow up as religious as my mum did. I think I thought, I don't want him to respond to it. I want my mum to validate it because she's the one with the religious hat on. And she's the representative of the kind of the community that we're part of. And to be honest, I was closer to her at that point in my life. We had a very, very tight knit relationship at that point. And I was terrified of telling her, but also comforted by the relationship that we had. And as far as coming out to your family, I mean, you've already alluded to this, but did you have more posture, for want of a better term, because you'd remained orthodox? I suppose, did it give you a sense of more legitimacy in their estimation with your struggle? Because if, for example, you'd come home and you'd said, mum, dad, I'm gay, and I'm walking away from a religious life maybe in your mind, they may have dismissed you or rejected you. Is that a fair assessment of how you were feeling? Not about how they would have processed it, but how you were feeling? I have to say at that point, I came out to them and told them I was gay. But I had no thoughts about leaving the Jewish community. And I had no thoughts about leaving the Orthodox community because I had no thoughts about being gay. (laughs) But at this point, there was no doubt about it. I'm going to change myself. And I'm going to stay in the community that I love and with the God and the, and the religion that I love. And this is what's happening. I was very adamant and that's what's going on. I didn't have a fear or a desire to leave the community at that point because I was so invested and so tied up in it. So how did they react? What was your parents' reaction? You say, this is who I am. This is the plan I've got to reverse it. What did they do? So at that point, my mum is quite emotional. Um, my dad I think kind of says, you know, it's it's fine, it's okay. And I think some in some way I was like, no, I, it's not okay. It's not okay, Dad. I'm not okay. I'm broken. I'm not. I'm not right. Um, a few weeks after that, we discussed this conversion therapy, what was called reparative therapy at the time, the idea that it was going to repair me. And there was skepticism, but there was also, oh, this is a solution, so let's try. And, and I was quite adamant this was the course I wanted to go down they decided to support me and kind of underwrite the costs of it and let me go through it. That's where that ends, I guess. They were paying for it, but the conversations we had about it were very, very limited. 
So once they were paying for it, which was, I was grateful for at the time and so appreciative at the time, but we didn't have the, the relationship or the, the space to actually discuss what was going on in the therapy. So the conversation sort of stopped at that point. So it was like they sort of outsourced the solution, but that was kind of the extent of their ability to be invested in your so-called solution. They left it to their so-called experts. Yeah, I think it's complicated. I don't think they knew what to do in that situation. So your parents are providing support and you find an American conversion therapist online. And at the start, you feel some relief and you believe it's helping. How? So this was the first time I had ever spoken to anybody about my sexuality, anybody about anything I was feeling. The first safe, and I'm doing inverted commas, the safe person (laughs) that I could speak to about my sexuality. So honestly, it felt like a breath of fresh air. And I think that's what's scary about it. But for the first few months and for the first maybe kind of six to eight months of it, it was just oh, I can breathe. Let's talk about this. Yes. Thank you for talking to me about this. I really appreciate you. I'm listening, you know, you're listening to me. You're not judging me. And I really appreciate that. And that was the first feeling I had. And that's quite scary, but that's based on the fact that I didn't really have anyone else to speak to about this. But that's really the dangerous appeal of conversion therapy because it feels like a lifeline for someone who's repressed these feelings all their life and then they're finally in a position to talk frankly and transparently initially anyway about how they're feeling of course that's got to feel like a relief it's just by definition it's got to feel like a purging conversion therapy thrives on the silence the silence in the communities that it's targeting whatever religious community it's targeting but it thrives in the silence that people aren't talking about this People aren't talking about sexuality or homosexuality or transgender and identity. So because of that, when I go to it, oh, it's it's a relief. But that temporary relief is followed by the crushing blow, no doubt when you realise that you're still attracted to men and that wasn't part of the deal. It was not part of the deal. And I spent a long time with a therapist talking about what we'd kind of see as slip-ups in a journey to redemption of some sort, that I was still attracted to men and I still went to synagogue and saw some guy and thought, oh, he's he's hot. Each time that happened, we explained it away. We kind of spoke about, you know, how I was less masculine as a child. So I need to, you know, address that. And that's kind of why you're gay, because you had too much of a feminine relationship when you were younger. So you need to seek out male relationships um, and friendships as as an older person. So we had conversations like that about kind of where the the root causes of my homosexuality were. And I think it was believable for the time because it was a process and I kind of believed in the process. Can you talk to me about how conversion therapy or reparative therapy or whatever they call this rubbish, the insidious way that it erodes your sense of self and in your case it left you on the verge of a nervous breakdown? What's being fed to you? So let's talk about the word reparative. So the reparative therapy, the idea that you need to be repaired because you're broken in some way. It's these narratives that are planted into your subconscious. Your relationship with your parents was like this and you lacked male role models or you know you didn't play football, you weren't typically masculine. So because of that, you don't feel like a man. You're not man enough 
And because of that, you're attracted to men. The therapy, if you looked at the emails and if you looked at the conversations that we had, they wouldn't sound so you know, different to you than the normal therapy, but it was the seeds that were planted. Here's a little kind of, here's the reason why, and here's the reason why. And it you know, goes back into your first memories of thinking about who you were, and it plants these seeds, which kind of become much larger plants that actually erode who you actually are. And it gives you this narrative about who you are that's not actually true. That's what was really insidious about it, was that slowly, slowly, changed how I felt about myself and yeah just made me feel incredibly alone and decayed. I can't imagine that it wouldn't make you feel atrocious. I mean is it true that it was promised to you that they would be able to liberate the red-blooded heterosexual inside that was just dying to get out? Were those the kinds of things that were sort of promised as part of this therapy? Yes I remember my therapist when I asked him, how long will it take? What's going to happen? How does it work? How long will it take? And I think it was after the second session or something, I was really anxious to know. I wanted it to happen quickly. And he was like, you know, I trust, I trust with you that it will happen fully. I trust with you that it will happen quickly. You know, you're really enthusiastic and not everyone's like you. And that was a promise that I believed in for a really long time. And what about the humiliations and the degradations and the things that you were compelled to share with them? If it's not too personal, what did that involve? Sharing kind of my innermost feelings about men, sharing any sexual thought, any sexual act that I experienced, anything with this therapist in a kind of forced intimacy with someone that I didn't really know that was on the other end of a screen on Skype. And sharing all of this with the hope that it would help me but actually it being used to make me feel less than they were treated as if they were something wrong and something that I shouldn't want to have. And I think constant repetition of that tells you that you're not okay. And when someone shares something that's that raw and that vulnerable, what you need is support. What you need is someone to say, I listen to you, I hear you, and not this is why you're, you know, feeling like this and you should stop doing this and you should stop doing that and you should stop, yeah. Well, you know, I've heard many testimonials actually of young religious men who bravely share that through conversion therapy, their life experiences, as you've so poignantly said, were framed as the reason why they were gay and it did untold harm to critical relationships in their lives. Some have said that they were forced to shun their mothers and their sisters as part of the therapy because of this erroneous presentation that they'd been over-feminized because they were too close, like you said, to their mum or their sisters. And that resonates with your experience, right? It does resonate with my experience. I began to blame my parental structure for, for my sexuality, and that was quite difficult because I couldn't speak to my parents about my conversion therapy because... It was tied up with who they were and how they were with me. And I've been in, in affirmative therapies, kind of, you know, healthy therapies now. And, you know, actually it's encouraged relationship. It's encouraged conversation. It's encouraged healing in a way that's accepting people for who they are and accepting people as complex selves. But in the conversion therapy, it was kind of framed as, you know, this is to blame, this is to blame. How often and for how long did you see this American conversion therapist online? 
So I saw him from, I guess, when I was about 17 through to about second year university. So I think two to a half years, three years with a, a kind of break in the middle, which we'll discuss um, when I was in Israel. Okay. So you then go and study in Israel at a religious seminary or a yeshiva where you start attending conversion therapy sessions in person. Was it more like a group therapy context in that there were other individuals? It wasn't just you and someone online, I would imagine. Yeah. So it started one-on-one with this therapist in Jerusalem. And he then mentioned to me after the second or third session, there was this group that I could come to with other people who were struggling with what they call same-sex attraction. Because it's not a sexuality into conversion therapists. It's like a kind of addiction. It's like alcoholism. It's like you can change this. So they call it same-sex attraction. And I began going to this group, which was a mixture of different people, you know, people who were married, people who were single and older, people um, who were my age, all struggling with their sexuality. And it's, you know, struggling is not a word I would use anymore. But at the time, that was what we spoke about. What were the things that became clear to you when you started attending these sessions? So I remember the sessions. Um, what we did was we did lots of kind of role-playing scenarios where we, were, where we were made to feel like less of a man. And I remember role-playing a situation with some friends that had upset me with this group. And at that stage, it felt somewhat like quackery. It felt like, what is this and, and how is it helping? But I appreciated the community and I appreciated seeing people like me. But it was an odd space to be in. It also highlighted to me that this wasn't something that was going away so quickly. There were people who were married in this group, who had children, who were still struggling. And that was quite scary to me. I mean, it was promised to be a curative approach, but it was more a management strategy. Because if you're saying that you were attending this group with people who were married and presumably living ostensibly and certainly publicly a straight life and are still attending, then they're not curing your homosexuality, are they? No. So as the months went on and on and on, I realised slowly that it was a management strategy and not this curative removal of my homosexuality. And Joe, each time the sessions didn't bring you any closer to heterosexuality, surprise, surprise, it made you feel what exactly? Just this huge disappointment, and not disappointment necessarily in the therapist, but disappointment in myself, that I wasn't doing enough. Just to be clear about it, Never was it promised that after each session I would feel less gay, but it would be over the course of a period that I would begin to feel less gay. And whenever it didn't work, whenever I still was attracted to a guy or I looked at someone too long or, you know, every single thought, every single feeling being analyzed constantly, I kind of threw a dagger into myself. You know, you're, you're, you're terrible. Why did you do this? What slowly happened was that as I began to manage my sexuality constantly with this kind of obsessive compulsive mode, I began to feel more asexual than anything. What's funny to say now, but actually quite scary, is that at that point, I thought it was working. I thought it was working because I didn't feel anything. I felt vacant, absent, kind of not excited about anything. And looking back now, I think that actually was depression that actually was I had been monitoring every action so so much that I think I led myself into a place of 
not wanting to be engaged in any life activity. You know, is, is calling it brainwashing putting too fine a point on it? It's only come to me now because I'm just thinking that if you were asked to prosecute every single thought through a prism of wrongdoing, every conceivable thought that you had, every impulse you had, and you get to a point where you actually feel nothing, yes, you can call it depression, but someone's planting these seeds as well. Yeah, I think you can call it brainwashing 100%. I think it's slow, it's insidious, and it leaves you not really recognizing who you are anymore. And then packages that as part of some sort of, you know, solution. You've done well, you've got to that point. But the issue was that that point never really got any better. It never really got better from that point. The idea at that point would be, oh, now you've removed your homosexuality, you'll suddenly grow heterosexuality, attraction for women. And that's the bit where I began to realize this isn't going to work, is it? And and you're not trustworthy. And I don't think that this is the right thing for me. So what age were you when you extricated yourself from conversion therapy? I think I was around beginning of my second year of university. I remember the conversation that I had with the therapist. And bear in mind at that point, I still hadn't realized this was an abusive practice. I knew it wasn't working, but I didn't realize that it was an abusive practice until I felt years and years afterwards that the impact of what it's done to me and realized that this wasn't something that was acceptable. But I remember having the conversation saying, look, it's not working. The sessions are becoming repetitive. And I think I've reached the point where I am going to kind of come out. I'm going to be a gay man. But actually, the, the interaction at the end was, he said, and it was always kind of like, you know, you're special. You know, like he was like, you'll do fine in the in the world of gay culture. And it was always kind of, you know, the world of gay men and how it's so stereotypically druggy and sexualized and promiscuous. And that was kind of the rhetoric that we, we heard in conversion therapy. And he was like, it's a scary place, but I'm sure you'll be okay. You'll be all right. And it was always framed as if I was some sort of special person that could be better than everybody else. But even in that end bit, I think there was a, a statement about the gay world isn't isn't safe. But I've got to go back a step. Was that an endorsement by this therapist to actually say it's okay, it's time, you've given it your all, you'll be right if you come out? I wouldn't call it an endorsement. I would call it an acceptance of the situation. I think even in that last moment, it felt remarkably kind in in an odd way that kind of kindness that I experienced quite early on my therapist was never overtly horrible to me I think that's the point of this it was not something that was painfully each time I spoke about it but it was something that planted seeds that actually did end up hurting me and when we ended and he said okay that you know you're, you're, you're finishing fine but I remember that piece of I trust you're going into the gay world with your eyes open as if kind of he'd provided me with some sort of education about what the gay world was. And that moment is really confusing to me. It was not the moment I expected of, okay, fine, you know, you go, you know, you'll, you'll ruin your life. And then I, you know, and, and an anger, it was a scary kindness in a way that actually in some ways could feel worse. It's sort of like, yeah, you go, you'll be fine. I think sometimes that's scarier because it's like, oh, okay, 
if I if I miss something here, have I got it wrong? And I think having that in the back of my head is is a complex thing to have. Yeah, but you'd also been drowned in shame and self-loathing for such a long period of time that it's sort of like saying to the child, well, you know, you have the candy bar. You want to have the candy bar. And, you know, you you feel so overwhelmed with guilt anyway, you, you then think, oh, my goodness, why are they giving it up so easily, you know? Exactly. And I, one thing I'll say about conversion therapy. Terrible analogy, Joe. Terrible. <laughs> I mean, it makes, it makes it pretty clear, though. I think it's like, you know, have it, you know, do it. You know, I know it's unhealthy, but, you know, go for it. And you make your own mistakes. But people can leave thinking that conversion therapists are these big bad wolves. And some of them really are horrible, abusive people. But often when people are doing conversion therapy, it's because either they've previously thought themselves as gay and think they've gone through it. So my my therapist was what we call an ex-gay in, in kind of um, the organization's words. And that's kind of the impulse of where they're coming from. And also often they're coming from a place of love, which is a really odd place to come. They, they really want to help people change. And it's a huge issue. It's actually, they don't realize that love is actually laced with horrible, horrible pain that comes with it. But from their perspective, they're doing something that is helpful and, and wants to you know support you. And save you. And save you. And re- yeah. In reality, it's it's abusing you, but they don't they don't realize that. Your parents, I believe, were quite upset with the ordeal that you'd gone through. Is that true? Yeah, my parents were really upset when they found out what I went through. And to be honest with you, they only found out what I really went through once I began speaking about it publicly. We never had that conversation after it had finished. It was more that I provided them occasionally with an update. Oh, it's working. Oh, it's not working. Oh, it's not working. It's working. It's not working. And then kind of with a, I'm not doing it anymore. But we never really had the conversation of what it entailed, what it looked like. And when I began to write about my experiences to help others and speak about my experiences, that's when I got the calls from them kind of saying, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that's what you went through. We should have pushed back on you and said no. But we did not know. But it must have felt so profound and powerful to you that they were in a place to be able to show that compassion to you and that empathy to you and to really feel terrible that you had undergone this. They didn't know about it and they can't be blamed for that. You know, it was your space. But when they knew about it categorically and they wanted to extend this love to you and say that they're so sorry you went through that, was that really meaningful for you? Yeah, it was really meaningful for me. And it comes as part of a number of conversations that we've had over the past five or six years that have really healed some of the pain um, that, that we all experienced at that time. I want to say that you know part of the reason I couldn't speak to them is because it's really difficult talking about sexuality with your parents. A lot of people struggle talking about sex with their parents. It's an awkward thing. And I think awkwardness plus shame plus fear of being chucked out the house is quite quite hard it's quite a potent mix for not wanting to talk about something quite the cocktail yes (laughs) so you come out the first time if we can say that when you're 17 but it's not until another four years from coming out to your parents that you come out to your friends and wider family and by all accounts joe that was an entirely different experience because 
as we've spoken about, the first time was more of a case, I'm gay, but I'm working to reverse it. So don't worry about it too much. I have the solution. How was it to finally share your truth with your broader family and friendship circle? Because from what I understand, the second time was with more confidence and can I say even clarity. There was no apologia, no invitation or input to troubleshoot as to how to fix your so-called problem. It was very much a case of this is who I am. I am a gay Orthodox Jewish man. What was that like? It was so different and actually felt like a positive experience of coming into myself. And I wasn't coming out of a space of shame. I was finally in a space where I knew who I was and felt comfortable with that. It came out of a moment of rock bottom, I'd say, in terms of university and my mental health and just kind of being up and down so, so often with my mental health to the point where I realized this is the central issue that needs to be dealt with before anything else is dealt with. And I remember it so vividly. I was talking to my friend who actually also had um, severe mental illness at the time. So we were both in quite difficult moments and I was sitting with him and we were like, you need to go home. You need to, to get on a train, go home and tell your parents. So I go from his flat to the train station. I book a train there and then I go home and I tell my parents, like the minute I walk through the door, I'm gay, I'm orthodox, this is who I'm going to be. I'm not doing conversion therapy anymore and we're going to have to get used to it. And that's really kind of when I think life began for me as me. And I remember that moment and feel excited about it. And I feel joy around that moment in a different way to my first coming out and coming out kind of continues throughout this world but it was a joyful moment and then I began telling some friends and I allowed the uh, the the gossip university gossip mills to run and and it kind of shared more publicly and as the months went on I began to tell more and more people and just to say like you know people come out in many different ways and for me it, it was a matter of telling those closest to me and allowing others to share that sometimes what feels like a burden to constantly speak about your sexuality so I allowed family members to share with other family members and that made it a lot easier for me as I came out more. I was gonna say the Jewish grapevine is fairly efficient in this respect don't you think? Agreed, agreed. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, before, before social media you know if you want to get something out there you could have just said it to the mirror and then it would have been everywhere. Exactly. So you were courageous to tell another human being. Very good. And then you decide to talk publicly about your journey. What prompted that? Because that's a major leap, my friend, coming from where you came from. But I have to add a caveat to that. You waited for another year to become a public voice. Mm. Why? The reason that I wanted to speak about my story comes firstly from this value in, in my religion and in, and in my community of, of supporting other people that are vulnerable and are having difficult lives. It's always been part of my family's role in our community to be supporting others. And I wanted to do that too, and in my particular way. But the main thing and the main example I saw of this particular way of doing this, way of helping people, was the reason that I actually stopped conversion therapy and came out was I saw someone else doing it first. I saw someone else doing it on YouTube, on a video of three American Orthodox Jewish men talking about their sexuality. 
And I remember watching it and the feeling of clarity emerging for me. There was fear um, in that moment of clarity because I didn't know what to do with that clarity. But the clarity was like a revelation. It was so clear to me in that point, oh, I'm, I'm that person that I'm looking at. I'm looking at a mirror and that's me. So when I came out, it was really important to me that I provide that mirror to others. And the reason that I waited for a year, and that was a blessing to wait for a year, and the reason why is a blessing as well, is I had a close friend who was a rabbi that I grew up with. He was one of the first people that I came out to at that time when I came out for the second time. He was incredibly supportive and provided hours of conversations in his car and walks and said to me, look after yourself first. Take a year, take a moment to live as you are in your full self and then decide whether it's time to speak out. I think it was one of the best pieces of advice that I, I got. And it, and it wasn't said to me in a way that was, I don't think you should speak about your experience, you know, quiet, be quiet, be less, be small. I think it was said from a place of love and care. And as someone who is a rabbi who knows what it means to kind of put yourself out there when you speak publicly. So I paused and I took that time for myself and it was a really wonderful decision. Tell me about the first time that you shared your story publicly. How was it received? The first time I shared my story publicly was at this huge Jewish conference festival Lots of Jews coming together to eat, learn, and meet each other from across the world, all in a place called Birmingham in, in the UK. And that's where I decided to speak for the first time. And the reason I spoke there for the first time was because it's really democratic and open. You can just sign up to do a session, and it becomes part of the program. It's really wonderful. So I thought that would be a safe test audience for me to share my story for the first time without also fear of backlash. Um, there aren't many spaces in the Jewish community in the UK where I grew up, the Orthodox community, where you can speak about your sexuality, if, if any. There aren't really any spaces. So this was the only space that I felt I could speak. And how was it? I remember being in the, in the room, the kind of 70 people, people were sitting on the floor. My parents had come up for the day which I was surprised about. I thought, oh, wow, they've come up for the day. How amazing. My sister came with them and they'd never been to this festival before. This festival is quite a cross-denominational space, so it's not always so popular with Orthodox people. But they came up um, to sit in the audience and be there. And that was really special to have them there. And I don't think they'd really heard the story. They hadn't heard my story, like because it was always in my head. And my best friends were in the room. It was a really, really wonderful moment. It was nerve-wracking, <laughs> but I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed the feeling when people came up to me afterwards and said, thank you. The ability to be able to share your story, it comes with challenges and it comes with difficulties. But honestly, it's the easiest thing I can do. And the impact that it makes for people is worth every second of it. That's beautiful to hear. There have been, and it's important we say this, there have been so many inroads in the last few years and many, many Orthodox rabbis in leadership have been very vocal about the need as a community to support and embrace all Jews and to open up and dialogue even if they don't have all the answers. But, and this is the big but, Joe, how do we move the conversation beyond that? 
because it's certainly one thing for the emerging leadership to say, we love you, we want you here, we don't want you, God forbid, to harm yourself or feel that you don't have a place in our community and in our synagogues and in our homes. But is there space for you to live a rich and meaningful life where traditions that you were raised with are woven into the fabric of your world, akin to, let's say, I don't know your siblings, but let's say to the lives that your siblings are living? How do we take it one step further? That's the big question um, for many Orthodox leaders. And I think seeing the changes that have happened over the past 10 years has been so wonderful. And a world that exists now would not have existed when I was younger. And that's a huge, huge achievement. And the amount of rabbis that are coming out and saying LGBT people should love themselves and not be fearful I'm in the community and value their mental health and we should value them as people and and there shouldn't be homophobia and all of these different things. That's a huge achievement. And it's what I asked for in the first times when I spoke, it's kind of what I asked for from the community here um, in the UK when I, when I first spoke in various different spaces. What's important for me is we are able to actually live lives where Judaism is woven in, where we have those moments those life cycle moments, you know, weddings, families, even deaths, at each of those different points, your family, your structure comes into the conversation in some way. And it's it's a moment that could be beautiful. Use rituals to mark those moments because it's important and valuable. But they're often also moments of rupture because of the moments that you come into a space and someone says to you, you can't have that. I'm sorry. And I think one, one way to start having that conversation is when we frame conversations about homosexuality or transgender identity and when we talk about those often in in communities that are more traditional we'll talk about it in in frame in kind of the frame of sin and we're going to have to move past that space often when i when i started coming out and speaking the argument which you mentioned of kind of you know this person doesn't keep this law they don't keep the kosher laws about food this person doesn't keep the law about the sabbath and driving on it and you don't keep the law about sexuality. So like, you know, you're all, everyone's a sinner. Throw a stone and you'll hit a sinner. Kind of like, because they're so near, near, near to you, everyone's a sinner in some way. And that's one way of dealing with it. But it only gets you so far. It gets you to the point of, let's be kind. And you know what? I deserve more than kindness. We deserve more than kindness. We deserve full lives interwoven with our tradition. And I think that's what needs to happen next actually thinking about how we move away from the language of sin, how we accept that gay lives, gay relationships, transgender people and their lives are not sinful. They are actually holy. And of moving from the sinfulness to the holiness and the sacredness is how we get out of that. And I think for me, that's been a huge journey of working out how I build that holiness, that respect, that Jewish tradition into my gay life and how I put them together. But it's it's been predominantly found outside of the communities that I grew up in. And that's also something I was going to ask you. Was there a moment, like a pivotal moment, when inhabiting both your sexual identity and orthodoxy stopped serving you? Yes. Um, <laughs> the, the pivotal moment for me, which was a bit like a domino effect, was going to this Jewish conference and going into a space where people of different denominations were and people who were gay and transgender and different ethnicities and all kind of different types of people all coming together, 
it was the first space I felt I could be free as a gay Jewish person. So that was the freedom piece. The, you know, I'm able to talk about who I am. I'm able to flirt with someone at the bar, that kind of piece. But the next stage was finding a community where I could talk about my Judaism in the study house, in Jewish spaces where we were we were learning Judaism. I could bring my sexuality into conversations about Jewish text, into conversations about Jewish law, and it'd be welcomed, and I could bring my full self. And that was when I spent some time in New York. And it was a space that was LGBT inclusive, that was egalitarian, so slightly different to orthodox spaces. All genders were able to pray together and pray the same things together. And in that space... I'd say was another moment of I can breathe and breathe freely as a Jewish gay man. And that's the sort of thing that I need from communities around the world. What do you think would have helped you as a teenager struggling with reconciling your sexuality with your religious beliefs? One, I think that less silence and more conversation from rabbis and leaders and parents about sexuality seeing from when i was younger that there were people living different family structures in different ways seeing examples you can't be what you can't see and i wanted to see that when i was younger what comes with that is seeing rabbis who are lgbtq people who are engaging with the different religious rituals and and legal things that relate to LGBTQ people in a different way than they do to straight people. So seeing those two things would be really important to me. I want to know what your relationship is like now with your family. How do you bring your full self to the table? So I'm glad you mentioned the table (laughs) because that's where it starts. For me, the moment of feeling comfortable in my family as a gay man was at the Friday night dinner table um, when we come together each weekend for the Sabbath and eat together. I knew that things were okay and would be okay when we began joking about my sexuality at the the dinner table and that we could talk about it comfortably and it could be brought up. And that's where it is now. It kind of has developed more and more into having real conversations about moments that were difficult when I was younger having real conversations about how the communities that we live in are sometimes really difficult for LGBTQ people to live. Speaking out in public has helped have those conversations with my parents because they get to see that and learn a bit without me having to have that difficult conversation first. But now I feel blessed to have a wonderful family that listens and learns and loves me and that's what matters at the moment. One moment that happened when I was living in New York, a rabbi was quite homophobic towards me. A local rabbi, and uh, in a public way. And it was quite painful and difficult. But it happened. I moved on. I kind of tried to move on, and I decided that that wasn't going to define who I was. But kind of about that six months after that, my mum gives me a call. She says, I just got a call from the rabbi's wife and I told her that, you know, this and that and this and that. And she, she became this lioness (laughs) for me, you know, protecting her cubs. 
And I think that was the moment that I realized her love and my parents' love is so deep that it would go to protecting me in that way. And she does it now, you know, when with friends and my dad does it with friends and will call them out when they're horrible about LGBT people. And that's just a big deal. You know, they can love me and that's incredibly special. But when their love for me goes outside of just our family unit, it's also a, a really incredible thing to have. That's so beautiful. And I actually listened to an interview today where a very orthodox, prominent rabbi was having the interview with his gay son. And he said, without any apology, I'm a dad first. Mm. And my child can possibly go and find another congregation down the street, but my child can't find another family down the street. This is it. I'm it. My wife and I are it. Our kids are it. And it was just magnificent. It was a magnificent moment. It just reminds me of your mother's beautiful, gorgeous, protective conduct. I just think that's just very, very, very special. Joe, you self-identify now as a deeply invested Jew, but not an Orthodox one. Can you share with me what that now means for you and where you have now found your peace in life? Of course. So what my life looks like now is I'm still, as you say, kind of deeply invested in Judaism, which means that I still observe a lot of the rituals and practices. I keep kosher. I keep the Sabbath, which means I take a break and, and don't engage in anything electric or work related. I love learning and continued learning of Jewish texts and, and traditions from different communities. The space that I've now found that speaks to me is one that is a space called Mazorti Judaism in the UK, more traditional conservative Judaism in, in America. It's part of that community. It's a space where tradition is valued, so the Jewish law is valued, but egalitarianism, um, equality between genders and all kind of different people is also valued. It's somewhere where I'm valued as a person first, a gay person first, and Judaism comes as part of that. And it's really special. It's allowed me to create communities and friendships and relationships that sustain me and don't take from me. And that's been really wonderful. Joe, I hope you only know peace and untold happiness. You are such a wonderful young man. It makes me sound like I'm 6,000 when I say <laughs> But you are. You are such a wonderful person. And I have really loved this chat. I mean, I say that to all my guests, but I've adored this. I have been so enlightened. You've answered every question with such candor and so much soul and so much heart. I have loved having you on Brave Journeys. Thank you so much for coming on. And I've just loved it. I've loved it too. Look forward to hopefully meeting at some point. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening today. The brave journey of my next guest is equally compelling and I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Please join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Oh, and if you love the show, please don't forget to rate it and leave a review. Brave Journeys was created, hosted and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But I couldn't do this without my wonderful team, including my audio editor, Zoltan Fecho, and a very special thank you to George Weinberg. Ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. 
I'm Tam Faraday and I'll see you on TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. See you next week.